Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. Give him a warm welcome. So James has been part of our family for the last 12 years. He's in between two of my boys, and he's a J. Um, so, yeah, he's kind of another son, aren't you? Adopted into the family. So it's my great privilege, and I'm so proud of him, to be sharing what he's sharing today. Um, so I'm going to get off and leave you to it. Great. Thank you very much. <laughs> the stories I could tell, I can tell you something. If you want over a coffee later, I can dish some dirt, so it's fine. <laughs> But um, as Kitty said, my name's James. I uh, head up learning and development for the Methodist Church in London. And I have uh, spent a few years on staff with Simon and Keely as the student pastor. So I've known these guys for since I was 18. I'm now at the ripe age of 30. And uh, over those years, we have um, journeyed through quite a bit together. It did include me giving a word for them once, prophesying over them, that God was leading them on to new pastures, which led them here. Um, So you can thank me later. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. Um, I grew up in a town called Basingstoke, not not known for a lot. Um, But I was, in fact, Basingstoke's under-14s gymnastics champion. Thank you, thank you. Um, I actually got one of the worst scores of the day. Um, I uh, ended up, my, my floor routine, the pinnacle of my floor routine was a teddy bear roll. Um, and uh, I, uh, in, in the competition, it was the first time I'd used the vault. And so I ran down the runway with so much gusto, absolutely pelted it down, forgot to do one thing, uh, which was jump. So I ended up <laughs> smacking into the vault. The woman who was judging burst out laughing, had to get off of her judging chair to show me how to use the vault. And so I hear you say, James... How did you become Basingstoke's under-14s gymnastics champion? Well, um, it turns out I was the only one in the competition. Um, and so I ended up getting a podium position by default. So it's, it's safe to say that I dropped gymnastics as a hobby. But one of my current hobbies is I uh, dabble in a little bit of poetry. And I wonder if I can open this morning with a bit of a poem prayer. So why don't we pray? A moment in time. An invitation to align ourselves with all creation and allow our hearts to echo the ovation to the creator. May we posture upward and outward to allow the mysteries of God to connect with the realities of the world. Let us slow, be still, to allow ourselves to hear the whispers behind the words and that which is heard to seep and sink deeper within us still, to plant, to seed forth life. And as God speaks life into being, may the planting of his, the seeds of his whispers grow within us today. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to share part of my personal story to draw out some of the lessons that I have learned, but also things which I believe might encourage the church and to invite you into a bit of my story and the lens and the framework which I see the world. Now, just to say, this is the first time I've publicly shared my story. I hadn't actually come out openly until the age of 28, so I'm pretty late to the game. 
Um, and just to say that we aren't going to delve in this morning into the theology of same-sex relationships. And so if this is your first talk that you are coming to. This is part of a bigger series um, looking at what does it mean to be all one in Jesus. So please do go back and look at earlier talks on the subject, which do delve into the theology, particularly um, Steve Bernhope on what might be deemed to be the clobber verses. But I'd love to preface this morning's talk with some scripture from Colossians 1, 19 to 20. It says this. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. I am a big believer in the idea of God reconciling all things. And I think this verse really reminds me of Kintsugi art, which is a Japanese art form by which broken pieces of pottery are brought together and aligned with gold. And therefore, in the reconciliation of all things, as part of that process, things are also recreated. And as we talk about possibly some, some difficult things this morning. I want to share this as part of the process which I believe speaks to what you are journeying through as a church and allowing God's love to bring healing and wholeness and beauty to a discussion that has caused hurt and pain for so many. And this is gospel work. Things which are painful can take on a new form. And it's my hope that this morning that parts of what we talk about can point to the potential of what the church can become. I also want to caveat that my story is not a blueprint to follow. Our stories are unique and the stories of LGBT Christians are unique. And so I don't want to present this as morning as a one size fits all approach to being gay and Christian. I became a Christian at the age of 14, around the same time as you would think as my gymnastics prowess. Um, not that I think there is any correlation, though the Lord does work in mysterious ways. Um, however, I found myself invited to an Alpha course by some friends, and it's the first time that I'd ever walked into the doors of a church. And it was there, in that church, that my adventure with Jesus began. And later on that year, I got baptised, and after my baptism, my mum went on a similar journey of discovering she also became a follower of Jesus too. And I, now this church was, was quite an old school Pentecostal church. I can remember walking into, into the church on the, on the first Sunday after becoming a follower of Jesus that Friday. And this church had guitars, it had drums, and people started singing. They put their hands in the air. Some people cried and some people shouted and I stood there, honestly, sweating. This was nothing what I'd seen like on Songs of Praise on a Sunday. <laughs> and then this guy started talking in this funny language, which then turned out to be tongues. And I honestly felt like I had to learn the Lord's Prayer in Hebrew. <laughs> even despite that, even despite that experience, I found myself still captivated by Jesus. And so there I was, age 14, a new Christian, and it was around that time that I began to realise that I was a little different. As the guys started fancying girls, I tended to be more interested in the guys. And therefore, at the start of my faith formation, was intertwined with my discovery of my sexuality. It was a slight curveball, um, but I didn't know who to talk to or what to do. 
I didn't have the language to be able to use to name my sexuality. Gay was just some word in the playground that people used as an insult, and I didn't want to be bullied, so I kept it quiet and I sat on it quietly. The question then raised in my head, what does God think about this? And so, like any good Christian boy, I turned to the Bible. Now, my my first Bible was a youth Bible, and there was a life issues section, and to my surprise and excitement, there were two sections on homosexuality. I could finally know what God thought about my attraction to men. Now, these two sections, one was called It's a Sin, and the other one is entitled Paying the Rent. Paying the Rent talked about a guy called Nathan who started selling himself for sexual favours with men for money on the streets of Amsterdam, and his life had completely turned around when he met some Christians. The second, called It's a Sin, discussed that homosexuality homosexuality was a sin and just as bad as sleeping with your neighbour's wife. And so here was my compass, my intersection for my faith and my sexuality, as written in my youth Bible. The two pieces of advice that I had in the eyes of God for me liking guys was akin to being a male prostitute and sleeping with my neighbour's wife, neither of which I must admit I had aspirations of doing. So what do I do? Well, these two bits encouraged me to speak to my minister or youth worker if I was struggling with my sexuality. And that's what I ended up doing. I told my youth worker something I had never told anyone else in my life before. None of my friends, not my parents, nobody else knew. It was initially greeted by thanks for honesty and vulnerability. And there was a new phrase doing the rounds at the time of love the sinner, hate the sin. And I suppose the intention was not to be especially horrible to gay people, but often what people called sin at that point was in its essence homosexuality. It wasn't what I did with my sexuality, but in and of itself, sexuality was described as sinful. And I just want to address this directly. You might think that it's a kind phrase. However, I didn't choose my sexuality. And what it means, uh, what we call a sin, is, in, is a facet of what makes me, me. Therefore, when we use a phrase like this, um, you know, we, we are calling part of who I am sin. And so my framework for faith was formed in that classical Pentecostal church. And it went a bit like this. Sin was bad. Jesus died for it. And as Christians, we weren't meant to be living in sin. And so I did a bit of filling in the gaps. Um, If that was the case, then I should have nothing to do with these desires. I just needed to not have them. And through conversations with my youth leader, we decided that it would be a good thing if I talked to a man about these problems. It was here that I was passed on to someone who was in high esteem in that church. These conversations discussed the fact that I could be free from my sin, I could be healed from my homosexual desires. And as a young person, I was often encouraged to talk to him uh, every time I found another guy attractive or had a thought about a guy. It meant that the majority of my discipleship framework was built around my sexuality. In these conversations, I was rarely asked how my prayer life was, whether I was cultivating a rhythm of generosity, whether I was talking to my friends about Jesus. The majority of these conversations were about whether I was having attractions towards men. This culminated in one Sunday morning when I was having these conversations with him and his wife after church. They said to me that these thoughts were a stronghold of Satan in my life and I could be free of them. They likened it to someone they knew who was an adult who was attracted uh, to children. And so 15-year-old me 
wanting so much to please God and be acceptable to him, sat as two people prayed that my attractions to men were a stronghold of the evil one would be broken and I would be healed. I'm not going to lie, it wasn't really my favourite activity on a Sunday morning. And, and so from that point on, solidified in my teenage mind was the, not the, only the idea that my sexuality was bad, it was sinful, a stronghold of Satan, and was like having sex with my neighbour's wife, being a male prostitute or similar to paedophilia. This had a profound effect on me, both mentally and spiritually. And preparing for this talk, I was looking back through old journals and some of it was quite cringe, like that thing that pops up on Facebook that says those things you posted on Facebook eight years ago that you wish you hadn't. And um, after that incident, I actually found a time when I, I wrote something like this in my journal. To be honest, I don't even know who I am and what my qualities are anymore. I sometimes think that some pills or alcohol or a knife could end it. I found myself in a wrestle of hating myself because I couldn't seem to be free from these thoughts of liking men. Like getting lost in a maze, I kept on finding myself back at the same space. I felt so shamed and dirty. But not only that, I felt like I embodied sin. Something at the core of my being was a poison and I was polluted and therefore why would God love me if I was like all of the things that people had told me I was like and I was just 15 years old. And we do find these messages in churches. Some of them are now a bit more fringe. However, as a gay person, time and time again, I have witnessed at best the hesitancy of the church. The carefully constructed words of Christians who don't wish to fully condemn the words at risk of condoning homosexuality. And at worst, I've witnessed the silence of the church. And as a church, as as the people of God, we are told we are meant to be ambassadors of Christ, extending a message of love to the world. What message are we extending How are we being ambassadors of a gospel whilst allowing real hurt and continuing the name of that gospel? And in the wake of these messages, I had learned to separate my sexuality from myself. So much so, I paint this picture of a valiant Christian James that would fight against an, an evil gay James. And as silly as it sounds, I tried to convince myself that these desires were a different person because maybe... When I wasn't that person, maybe God could like me. Maybe, just maybe, even God could love me. There is a book entitled The Velvet Rage. It's written from a non-Christian psychologist, Alan Downs, who talks about an inbuilt sense of shame that gay people feel in society in general. And he writes this. The damaging part of learning to live your life in two parts, whether in reality or fantasy, cannot be underestimated. It is an infectious skill that you learned, one that would eventually spread beyond the bedroom of your life. Life wasn't ever what it seemed on the surface. Nothing could be trusted for what it appeared to be. After all, you weren't what you appeared to be. In learning to hide part of yourself, you lost the ability to trust anything or anyone fully. Without knowing it, you traded humane innocence for dry cynicism. For a lot of gay people, we have learned to live by and be defined by life in the shadows, feeling a sense of shame by the fact that we are othered. The very idea that we have to come out means that we have to define ourselves as something different than what is considered normal. 
the only model of relationships that was presented to me as a teenager on my TV screen was of a man and a woman. I went to school on the back end of Section 28, which was a bar on teachers even being allowed to talk about homosexuality as something that could be normal. And that law was repealed in 2003, but there was still no teaching about homosexual relationships because of an uncertainty of what to say. And I know that for some people here today, you might even have grown up when it might have even been illegal to be gay. And this feeling hasn't gone away. For many LGBT people, we often feel we can't be ourselves fully in society in general out of a fear of discrimination. I had my first relationship at 28, and I would still look over the stro- my shoulder at the people I passed as I held my partner's hand out of fear that someone might say something. And you might think, oh, James, you live in London. I, I do live in London. Um, but I remember when my relationship began, there was a story in the news of the time of a, of a gay couple being beat up on a bus in London. And that's not taking into account and consideration the church as a place that is supposed to extend a welcome and a refuge ends up being a double portion of shame, a double portion of hurt to the members of the LGBT community. I left the sunny sights of Basingstoke and I trekked off to Birmingham for my theology degree. University felt like a bit of a blank slate, an opportunity to create myself. In my freshers' week, I found myself with the option to join either the Christian Union or the LGBT society. It felt like an either-or choice. Do I be gay or do I be Christian? It felt like a binary choice. No middle ground, no both and. But I still deeply loved Jesus. This is something about, there's something about him I found and still find so captivating. So I couldn't feel like I could turn away from my faith, so I threw myself into all things Christian, into a theology degree, and in a way, trying to forget the fact that I was gay. I suppressed it. I tried my best to be anything other than a gay man. I tell myself the reason why I didn't have um, attractions to women is because I had a deep respect for them. All the while, hiding and keeping the attractions that kept on surfacing a secret. It was at that time I was taken under Simon and Keeley's wing. I'm not sure what Keeley is like here, but in Birmingham she was the rotor queen. <laughs> you just had to blink and you were on a rotor. And so contact hours on my theology d- degree were rather thin, and I ended, up with a bit of a fr- I ended up with a free day a week. And so I popped into the office with Keeley for a quick chat, and ten hours later... I was being dropped home after doing a strengths finders assessment and becoming the volunteer student pastor working 15 hours a week. <laughs> a whistle stopped tour, you could say the least, and I had been well and truly keelied, a phrase which you may be familiar with. I felt like I needed to tell someone in Birmingham about these attractions I had. And so I told Keely on the way into the office one time, but it turns out that God had apparently already told her. And I was like, geez, God, spoil the surprise. <laughs> However, that, that opening up invited both Simon and Keeley into my journey. And at that point, I wanted to be straight as the only option presented by the church was a lifetime of enforced singleness and celibacy. I wanted to have a life partner. I wanted to have a family. And so for my time at university and some years after, I tried my best not to be gay. I prayed even harder, 
But like a pressure cooker, it built and it built and it built. And it got to the stage that I was faced with bad depression and anxiety. And looking back through some old writing, I found this old blog post that I was writing at the time to help me process. And it went like this. (coughs) I then finished university and started on my church's staff team. Everything was great. I mean, I had a job that people had championed me for, encouraged me to do, something I felt that was part of my destiny. I had friends who I considered as close as family, and I had family that I was closer to than ever. And ultimately, I had a God that loved me dearly. Aesthetically, everything was great. However, four years of suppression had had a damaging effect on me. Being busy couldn't hide the fact that there was a war waging inside me. Two worlds were colliding and blissful ignorance could not mask what was going on any longer. I began to become angry and bitter. It's a weird feeling waking up and not knowing who you are. Or rather, realising who you thought you were was never who you are. For weeks I sat on it, wrestled with it, prayed that God would change me even more so than before. It was to no avail. I had no energy left to suppress these two warring identities. That's when I found myself slumped in a chair at a church prayer meeting. I had nothing left. In a cry of exhaustion, tears rolling down my face, I came before God, to my loving Father, not to plead or beg or wrestle, but for the first time in my life, to just be. Not to be gay or to be straight, but for the first time, to allow myself to exist before my God. That moment was a moment of no return. The lid was off. I had allowed myself to admit and be okay with the fact that I'm gay. To admit to myself, to God and to some of my closest friends. I gave myself for the first time in my life permission to be fully me, fully James before God. And there was a a lot of wrestling and journeying from that point to the place I'm now in. However, the wrestling has led me into a deeper place with Jesus. It still hasn't been easy. I ended up leaving two ministry roles in my time because ultimately Christian culture on the whole doesn't permit someone like me to minister if I don't want to be forced back into the shadows. And it was mainly this that led me to kind of be fully out to everyone at the age of 28. And I want to challenge us in general around our our tacit culture, the things that are implied but not said. The church's general discomfort around those who are LGBT. We have to understand that for most gay people, we're already looking over our shoulder in churches for when the next rebuke might come, for where the limitations of our service might be, for the extra caveats to our inclusion. If there is no statement to the contrary, we will naturally infer that a place shows us limited welcome. And we aren't fully welcome as we are. That is why there is a need for a position. A non-position is a no position for people that are looking for a fully inclusive and embracing church. Because not everyone can see Jesus through the church's roadblocks and curtains, through the smoke and mirrors of where people might stand on the topic. You may have heard of someone called Lizzie Lowe. Lizzie Lowe was 14 years old, a dedicated church member playing in the church band. However, she also wrestled to marry her faith with her sexuality and was faced by a church 
that were silent. It didn't talk about sexuality in the fear that it would kick up a hornet's nest. Lizzie wrestled to the point that she felt she couldn't go on. And sadly, on the 10th of September 2014, she took her own life. Her church then went on a journey to examine its own theology and stance. And we'll pick up part of that story as we watch a video for the next five minutes. And I wouldn't say even now that everybody in our church is signed up to full inclusion. Some people, most people are, but some people aren't. I would call what we have in our church a yielded consensus, that people may not all agree in full inclusion, but they've decided to accept that as the community decision and live by it. Um, and so actually that's shown huge graciousness on all sides, actually, that we can come to that position of yielded consensus. But now the policy of the church is one of inclusion, even if some individuals within the community are not there personally, theologically, uh, they accept the decision of, of our church. Good. And after her death, there was an, an inquest. Mm. And did anything transpire there that had not been known before? Yeah, well, when, when Lizzie died, um, the church community went into um, a state of terrible shock. Um, but nobody knew why she'd taken her life. Um, we opened the church up to all of her school community, to all the wider community. We uh, rallied around the family, uh, Lizzie's parents. We um, tried to help the community make sense of what was going on, but we were really working in the dark because we didn't know what had happened to Lizzie, why she'd felt so desperate. Three months later, on the 19th of December 2014, uh, Lizzie's parents invited me to go to the inquest. Um, and what transpired was that Lizzie had this huge gap in her life between her faith that meant so much to her. She was a really committed Christian young person. But she was also... Um, wrestling with and coming to terms with the fact that she was also a gay young person. And somehow in her mind, in her spirituality, in her psychology, she just couldn't bring her Christianity and her sexuality into a conversation. There was a gap there. And it was clear from the coroner's hearing that this was a really big part of her decision to take her own life. She just didn't believe that God could love her the way she was. And this was obviously a huge shock to all of us, but it was also the start of a, a journey of deep reflection for the church. How could we allow the silence around sexuality to create a context in which Lizzie couldn't discuss what she was going through? Mm -hmm. And so there was an enormous process of self-reflection, communal repentance, um, and trying to plot a way forward so that something like this would never happen again to another family or to another church community. And can you uh, give an example of, of how exactly the church reacted in a way which perhaps would have been different from before her death? 
Um, we, uh, together as a church, made a statement of inclusion um, after the inquest um, from the Inclusive Church Organization. And it explicitly welcomes all sorts of minority groups um, into the church at every level, including the LGBT community. Now, some people um, couldn't stay with us on that journey. Some members of our church left, which is very painful as a church leader. Um, But as a consequence of this statement, we also found that many others joined us. Mm -hmm. So we have um, LGBT Christians, uh, but we've also found that we've drawn um, adults with learning difficulties and uh, we have people from a whole range of racial backgrounds who've joined the church. Um, and so what we found is, is that by making the church safe for one group, we've actually made it safe for a whole range of groups um, who uh, now find a welcome in our church community. And has that? Do you, do you feel that that has enabled your congregation to have a more profound theology, a bigger understanding of God, or change their outlook? I think one of the things that, um, I mean, we were a fairly typical open evangelical community where sexuality was just something we didn't touch or talk about because we knew that it was a divisive issue. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you don't talk about an area like and as profound as important as sexuality, actually it begins to close off conversations in all sorts of areas and you don't realise that's happened until you open the windows, as it were, onto onto that subject. And once you've done that, once it becomes safe to be gay and a Christian and in church and as involved as you want, actually it's almost like it's given permission to everybody in the community to talk, to ask questions, to think about new ways of understanding our relationship with God. Well, if we're going to understand the Bible in this way, how does that impact on all these other things? What does faithful, committed relationship look like? How do we define and understand what a healthy relationship is? It sort of begins to open one box after another, which I guess could seem threatening to some people, but it's actually been very liberating. And it's also meant that people can ask questions and be honest about things in their lives that perhaps they were hiding away before. So I think there's been a greater honesty in worship since we became an inclusive church. And I certainly noticed that in our worship, which seems fuller and richer uh, than when we kind of had to put the awkward parts of ourselves to one side as we came in through the door. Now we can just bring all of ourselves in and it's okay. And that's a much healthier place to be. I am a firm believer that God can turn pain into potential. This journey that that particular church went on from a moment of immense pain showed a potential for a new space. As a church, they've continued to grow and they've seen new ministries start as a result of their move towards full inclusion. And I still believe that God's idea for the church is the best idea. I still believe that our faith is forged in the fires of community, that our Christian heritage is communal, that we aren't meant to do it alone. 
that we can collectively partner with God to bring healing and wholeness to a broken world, to partner with him in reconciling all things. That is why I think it's important to to bring what is in the shadows, the secret, the silent things into the light, to relieve the hurt and the pain of its power, to let people know that they are not excluded from the love of God. I spoke earlier about the idea of Kintsugi art, the idea that, that brokenness can be laced with gold to form something new. It is my hope through journeying through this topic of inclusion, you as a church will form a new story. A story that partners with God in the reconciliation and recreation of all things. That we will stand here today and make a change to ensure that no young person needs to experience that story. That anyone that walks through the doors will receive a genuine welcome without having to look over their shoulder. That there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God. I've recently been listening to a song um, that is called From Grave to Gardens. and, And that phrase really captured my imagination for what the church can speak into. We are resurrection people, ones that bring life where there is hurting. And I love in the Gospel of John, when the women went to the tomb to discover that Jesus wasn't there, they ended up speaking to someone they thought was the gardener. And it actually turned out they were speaking to Jesus. And I believe that through this series, God is growing something in you as a church. A new chapter that will bring about new life. To partner with him in bringing new life to a community that has been hurt and that has suffered. God is taking the grave and he is turning it into a garden. And yes, this series is about inclusion and affirmation of the LGBT community and same-sex relationships. But that video was entitled Beyond Inclusion. And I believe that we have to go beyond inclusion as well. If where we stop is around this theological discussion about whether or not gay people can be in loving monogamous um, relationships, including marriage. If that's where this conversation stops, then I don't think we have truly lived out our potential as a church. It is an important conversation. But in the Gospels, when it's written that the curtain was torn in two, it was a symbolic access to all areas that we have to God through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. We cannot be in the habit of curtain mending as a church. We can't have a sewing club where the only thing we resurrect is a blockage of access to the presence of God. Jesus in Luke 4 is tempted in the wilderness. He's tested to how he will operate and use his power that he has in the world. He's offered all things, wealth, possessions, influence. However, he rejects those and coming out of the wilderness Through that time of testing, we hear his mantra, his manifesto in Luke 4. And it says this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This is the mantra, the manifesto of Jesus for his ministry Through this, we get a glimpse into who God is and what God is about. It is about access to all areas for everyone, especially those who have been marginalised and oppressed. 
and not just for those who hold and own the cultural power. However, this isn't just restricted to areas such as sexuality. Our declaration of freedom doesn't stop with one group. Our need to speak freedom against oppression is universal. And that should challenge us. It should make us feel uncomfortable because as we hear about it, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And we see Jesus being tested in the wilderness about how he will use his power to what kind of things he will stand for. We see the wrestle and we hear the mantra. And so as we wrestle with sister, against the systems and, and the principalities and the powers, how are we declaring freedom against all forms of systemic oppression? How are we following the way of Jesus in declaring and standing against systemic racism, against ableism, against a system that does not welcome the refugee? Because, friends, the gospel isn't just a nice story where we can sit on our laurels. It is a declaration and a framework for a whole reorientation of society, which is bathed, moulded and shaped by the revolutionary love of God. We cannot, therefore, ignore questions around a theology which brings pain and hurt to whole communities. We have to do the work that enables us to live out our potential of the declaration of access to all areas. And in this work, in this declaration of freedom, we are also saying that people can come fully as they are. You can come fully as you are this morning. There is nothing to stop you coming into the presence of God today. And so often we have created a Christian culture of shame and hiding. And this has been felt deeply by the LGBT community, especially for those who've had to journey their sexuality in a church context. However, by allowing a space where people can be fully themselves, we are also giving ourselves permission, as it's mentioned in the video, to be free of shame. And it is my hope and my prayer that as part of this journey, we are freeing ourselves all from the oppression of shame and taking up the invitation to be fully free, fully free in vulnerability with each other and with God. Now, I've heard a popular phrase in some church circles which says, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And for me, that phrase meant come as you are, but leave looking like us. And that might be the case for some of us this morning for a whole wealth of reasons. Now, I know that the premise behind this is the phrase is indicating the transformational power of Jesus that our lives should be should be slowly molded and shaped by the God who is molding and shaping us. And it should We should look different as Christians, as we orient ourselves around the way of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we should be producing clones of ourselves. The prophets in the Bible uh, lived life on the edge. They were oppressed for being different and bringing a different perspective that was different than the status quo. So often the voices from the margins in our own churches, those who are oppressed, are the church's best prophets calling out the church's wrongdoing and sparking its journey to repentance, healing and wholeness. If we quash the voices from the margins because they don't look like us, sound like us and act like us, then we are at risk of quashing the prophetic voice of God. So let us point people to Jesus. It is my hope uh, that this conversation that we have allows LGBT people to, who come into the doors of this church to know that they are fully welcome and then allows them to get on with being disciples of Jesus. 
It is our job as a church to point each other to Jesus, to the one that can release us from our shame. And yes, that does mean as disciples that we are moulded and shaped by him. It does mean that we will have to wrestle with what it means to be a follower of Jesus in today's world. It does mean that we will need to repent and continue to face up to our sin and ask Jesus to transform us. And it also means that if we are to follow Jesus in his manifesto, if we are to follow him in the way of Jesus and be like him, then we also have to create a space like he did in his ministry. All can come fully as they are to encounter a God that loves them unconditionally, no ifs, no buts. There is a space for everyone at the table in the kingdom. But that also means that there is a space for people around the table that we might not agree with. And wherever you are on this journey over the past few weeks, it's my hope that you know that in this church and in the kingdom of God, there is a place for you at the table. Wherever we land on this topic, I hope we'll be able to hold, as the video mentioned, a yielded consensus. And you might be here today with some uncertainties around this conversation up until this point, or you may have breathed uh, uh, finally as the conversation first started. And as mentioned, there is a need for us to be open uh, and, and clear position. But this position isn't a bounded, set, t- conscious test, an in or an out. A yielded consensus starts from seeing the image of God in everyone here. The baseline is we have God-given dignity. And we want to honour and respect that God-given dignity in each other. And as a result of, as, as we honour and respect the journey so far, we don't have to agree with it. And if we don't, we still have a place at the table. However, it's my hope that as we go beyond a yielded consensus as a baseline, um, we, we would go beyond that and offer hospitality to one another, recognising the heritage that we have as followers of Jesus, of genuine hospitality of hearts and homes and as tables and temples. And it's around many tables that I have had transformative conversations about my faith and sexuality with people that know Jesus and people that don't. And on the topic of hospitality, Henri Nouwen writes this, hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them a space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. I do want to mention a caveat here. Hospitality does not rescind the need for us to be people that desire transformational justice and the kingdom to come on earth. It is a means by which that can come, But if at the end of a meal we are with an oppressor, we have placated their oppression, then that is weak reconciliation. The table is a place uh, where peace can benefit and transform society for the better. If by the end of a meal we have a shallow, nice, weak, squashed kind of peace, but someone's unjust treatment of another has not been challenged, then maybe the table isn't meant to be set, but rather be flipped. Reconciliation and justice are not separate. They are very much intertwined. And I've often heard sermons in the past where the burden of reconciliation is placed on the marginalised, excluded or hurt person. Sometimes we get tired of telling our stories. Sometimes we end up reliving the trauma whilst we're speaking it out again. Therefore, when creating a space of difference and to have those difficult conversations, don't always expect LGBT people to come to fight their corner. Some people are just tired. They don't want to fight. They just want to be embraced. 
And it's also to, has to be said that we, we don't want to talk about our, our you know, sexuality like it's the only facet of us. I happen to also be a massive geek and actually quite like Star Trek and talking about that, but it just so happens that not many other people do. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I also want to put another caveat here that we can't have a general conversation about inclusion for LGBT people and just agree to disagree, particularly around the area of whether or not people like me are welcome in church as they are. This isn't semantics. And if we're talking about people and treating this conversation purely mechanically, then we have removed people's humanity. That's an injustice and a disservice to Jesus and his ministry. In us acknowledging each other's God-given dignity, the image of God in one another, we cannot therefore disregard someone's humanity as a logical problem, but we have to authentically engage in the conversation out of recognition that we are all created by God. We talk about iron sharpening iron, yet iron can only sharpen iron in proximity. If we remove the proximity, we're just throwing daggers. It is in our proximity that we recognise each other's humanity. Whether we are close to one another, we can recognise and call out the divine spark that has been placed within each of us by God. We hear one another's stories. We listen to people's authentic relationship with Jesus. We hear their pain and their anxieties, we sit with them in it and we journey with them through it. And in that moment, we have to also be prepared that as we come close to people who think differently from us, that as iron sharpens iron, we might be sharpened too. And so we always have to come in a posture of humility. As we think about being a community who practices hospitality, I do want to encourage us to throw the nets wide with invitation and look with fresh eyes about who God is inviting us to have around the table. So as we finish, there is real pain here for the LGBT community. And I've experienced that, as we've heard, from some of its worst firsthand. However, I believe that there is an opportunity to go from pain to potential, from grave to gardens, to be a church that accepts everyone fully as they are, breaking off the the oppression of shame and allowing them to to be fully before the presence presence of God with no glass ceilings, to fully follow Jesus in his mantra to bring liberation to all and access to the presence of God for all. And I believe we start this revolution by extending hospitality to create a space where we can all come to the table, acknowledging everyone's God-given dignity. And from that place of acknowledging that, that we all carry the image of God, we journey with one another, being shaped by conversations that challenge injustice and lead to wholeness. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.